We're going to be in the book of Mark, chapter 5 this morning. Mark chapter 5, and we're going to begin with verse 1, and I'm just going to note that this is not your, your traditional Mother's Day sermon. It is not a Mother's Day sermon by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, we've been working through the Gospel of Mark chapter by chapter, verse by verse, seeking to understand the Scriptures, seeking to understand uh, what it teaches about Jesus Christ and what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And so to that end, we're continuing to move through and continuing to study this text together. And um, yeah, it's just, it's just not a Mother's Day sermon. That's, this is just where we are. In the introduction to his classic work, The Screw Tape Letters, author C.S. Lewis wrote this. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall among, about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors, speaking of, of the demons themselves. The demons themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delights. Screwtape Letters was a book that was written by Lewis to try to help us understand a little bit of the devil's tactics and how he seeks to tempt us and lure us astray from God's Word. And, and Lewis writes this about them, that there's, there are these two ditches that we can fall into, right? We live in an age in which the demonic is, we, we just kind of call that the paranormal, right? Or the evil is portrayed in movies for the sake of entertainment and we can forget that demons are very real beings, we can dismiss their current activity. We can chalk it up to stories of the paranormal. Now, maybe that was just a hallucination. Uh, maybe it's imagination. Uh, maybe there's, just, there's some other reasonable and logical explanation that something other than evil spirits is what's caused these different things. And so we can be dismissive on the one hand, but then on the other hand, we can swing so far to the other direction to have unhealthy interest and unhealthy drawn to these things, and we can show a fascination with such, a, such things that leads us into darkness. A pastor friend of mine was recently, he recently posted on Facebook about his experience. He, he was in, somehow he got into a Christian group on Facebook for Christian witches. Uh, individuals who claim to believe in Jesus, but they're caught up in the occult, and so they, they call themselves witches. There are individuals who call themselves Satanists. They intentionally worship the devil there are others who seek out encounters with the spiritual realm, not realizing what they are dabbling with. So there's a whole bunch of different directions that people can go when it comes to the spiritual realm. There's a teaching from Jesus where he states that when a, when a demon is cast out from someone, it wanders to and fro, and after a while it says, you know, maybe I'll just go back to the original host I was in just a little while ago. And he, when he returns, he finds everything kind of swept in order and the house is empty, and the house is used metaphorically in that context. And so he says, okay, I'm going to come back here, and he brings seven more demons with him. And on the, passage, on the basis of that passage, I encountered an individual who told me the story of a man who, who believed he had a demon, and he wanted it to be exercised from him specifically so that he would bring seven more demons back with him because he believed that would increase his own power in this world. It's just a, it's an odd approach and a strange thing to be approaching the supernatural realm in this way. 
The Bible talks a lot about the spiritual realm and the demonic realm. In a world where the demonic realm is either, it's either dismissed or obsessed over, we would do well to have a biblical worldview and understand rightly what the Bible teaches about demons and their activity. And in our text today, we have another account of Jesus and His encounter with the demonic. Now, this case that we're going to read today, it's a bit on the extreme side of things in terms of, of demonic activity as far as that goes. In fact, this chapter can, this contains uh, three accounts. We're in this passage of just some very extreme cases where Jesus is encountering people and just where they are in their lives and ministering to them in their situations, and they happen to be very extreme cases, but it is not beyond the power of Jesus Christ. So in the flow of this book, these cases represent Jesus. He's taking on the hardest cases, and He continues to demonstrate His power and His nature. Jesus' power is not limited to calming the stormy seas, as we saw last week, but He takes on the most daunting case of demonic possession in the region. And so my outline today is framed around these, these contrasting desires that we're going to see in the text. There's, there's going to be the desires of the demons themselves contrasting with the desires of Jesus Christ. We're going to see the desires of the people into, among which Jesus ministers and then the desires of Christ for those people themselves. So we're going to see these contrasting desires and first we see that the demons desire destruction. Read with me Mark chapter 5, verse 1. Text says this, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying about and cutting himself with stones. A few things that would be helpful to point out as we examine this text and seek to understand it. This this region that is mentioned, it's a little bit difficult for us to identify specifically which region this was in the ancient world. But from the context, we know it's on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, and it is likely a very Gentile region, and there's contextual reasons for believing that and understanding it that way. But immediately, we're struck with this description of this man. It says he has an unclean spirit. The language of unclean speaks of, of defilement, something that exists when, when a demonic presence is there and controls a man. There's a defilement that occurs there. This man is defiled. Internally, he is host to a demonic horde. Externally, he, mig he lives among the tombs where there are carcasses and dead bodies where only further uncleanness and defilement exists. He is a defiled man. Him living among the tombs is not only a sign of his defilement, but also of his isolation. The nature of his isolation in which he is living, mankind was created to live in community so that within those communities we could build and flourish together. But here is this man under the control of this demonic horde and he is driven away from the community. 
He is isolated, apart from, from anyone that could be of any benefit to him. All attempts to bind him and to secure him, they have all failed because under the influence of these demons, he seems to have a superhuman strength about him. So he is defiled, he is isolated, but he is also doing self-harm. The end of verse 5 says that he's cutting himself with stones. He's damaging his own physical body. So if the spiritual affliction and the isolation weren't enough, this man is physically abusing himself under the influence of these demons. It's a serious case of demonic oppression in this man's life. Serious situation, something that's beyond any hope of any human intervention and control. And not every case, as we know from Scripture, not every case is, is this severe, but this man's was. This is where he was. You know, sometimes churches like ours don't seem to put much weight or stock into the demonic realm today. It's something that we don't think a lot about, we don't, we don't pay a lot of attention to. Well, on the other side, there are some churches that really kind of go overboard with their fascination and their, their uh, preoccupation with the demonic. And it almost seems like there's, I don't know if you ever heard that saying, oh, these people look for demons behind every bush, right? They're just, everything that goes wrong in the world, okay, there's a demon behind that, all right? Or, or they talk about things, oh, we need to drive out the demon of lust, or we got to drive out the demon of greed from this person. And I'm not that way. <laughs> I don't use that kind of language. I don't tend to think about the demonic realm in that way. I tend to believe that because of our own fallen natures and the sinfulness of our own hearts, that we are plenty capable of sinning on our own, right? That's just, that's just the rottenness of our own sinful hearts. But then at the same time, that pendulum can swing so far to one side that, and I know that I can fall into the ditch of acting like the demonic realm isn't real at all. Like there's just nothing there and it's just all our own selves, even though scriptures and even my own experience would seek to tell me otherwise. Because here's a text, it's right in front of us. Here's a text that shows us that, that the demons love destruction. They have destroyed this man's life. They have wrecked his relationships. They love to defile a person. They defile everyone and everything that they can. Several years ago, I was meeting with a man one-on-one -on -one for, for Bible study. He, he, didn't, hadn't, he had no exposure to Christianity, didn't understand what the Bible was about, and so we were just sitting down and reading through the Gospel of John together, just, hey, this is, this is what the Bible says, and we were walking through that together. And I only got to meet with him two times, because after that, he told me he had to stop when I asked him why, and he told me because the voices said in no uncertain terms, no more Bible study with Ken. And this man lived a very self-destructive life. And I do believe there was demonic influence within this man's life. But demonic influence, it, it doesn't always manifest in that way. It can take place in a variety of forms. We tend to think about, when we think about the, uh, the way the New Testament talks about the defiling nature of the passions of our own flesh, it paints a sobering picture, a sobering reality. There's a passage in James chapter 3. Did you know that in James chapter 3, James calls bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, he calls it earthly, spiritual, and demonic. And he goes on to say that where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. 
Have you ever thought about these sins in this, in this way, that there's, there's demonic influence with, with these things? And disorder, every vile practice, that's exactly what demons love. That's exactly what they, they want. There's an insidious nature to how they operate. They love the disorder. They love the every vile practice. They love to destroy families. They want to destroy households. They want to destroy churches. They want to destroy communities. And that's exactly what they have done to this man in our text today. They have destroyed this man's life. Here he is, defiled internally and externally, isolated from his loved ones and anything constructive, harming himself with these stones. All these descriptions are meant to communicate the magnitude of this situation for this man. This man's in dire straits. He is beyond any hope of any human intervention, any, any human remedy to this situation. No earthly power can, can restore this man. But here comes Jesus Christ. Jesus does not come with mere earthly power. Jesus comes and he comes with power and authority from on high, even as the demons themselves are going to recognize within this text. And as much as the demons desire destruction, Jesus desires to see restoration of this man. Let's pick things up and keep reading in verse 6. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and, and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of this man, you unclean spirits. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us into the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and drowned in the sea. And the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. The text says that the demons fear Jesus. And notice that it is indeed demons, plural, and not demon, singular. It says, my name is Legion, for we are many. Our Roman legion was about six thousand soldiers. Now, we don't know if this, that is meant to communicate that this man had 6,000 demons within him or if it was just representative of a, a great many, a large number. But if it were a large enough group to wreck a whole herd of 2,000 pigs, I can say, I think we can safely say that there were a lot here. This further underscores the gravity of the situation for this man. Here he is. He's not just oppressed to the point of isolation and self-harm, but he is so thoroughly demonized that he is host to potentially thousands of demons. But no demon nor amount of demons is too great for Jesus to overcome. Immediately, they're begging for mercy. What have you to do with us? 
And I like how the, uh, the NASB translation renders this phrase. It says, what business do we have with each other? That's kind of the idea that's expressed there. What have you to do with me? Like, what's, what's the connection here? You don't have anything to do with me. And that's the same thing that the demon said back in chapter 1 when we were in chapter 1. That's the same phrase uttered there. What have you to do with us? What, what business do we have with each other? It's almost as though the demon is saying, you have no right to be here right now. Not at this time. So the demons request in verse 10 to be, not to be sent out of the region, but to be allowed to enter the herd of pigs nearby. And that's, in many ways, this is a very curious detail. <clears throat> Why would they request that? What's, what's going on there? And truly, it's, it's really not clear why this is to be preferred for them. Some have suggested that the demons are somewhat territorial, that this is the region that they want to be in. And so to be banished from that region would cause them distress in some way. I, I don't know the particulars of that. I suppose that's possible, but we're not given clear articulation of that within the text. Others have suggested that the fate of the, in the pigs is actually ironic since he, it drives the pigs into the sea where they will await judgment in the gloomy depths of darkness. Ultimately, we don't know, and truly I don't think we really need it to know why pigs, in order to understand what this represents for us as we understand the text. Legion was indeed a massive horde of demons. To cast 2,000 pigs into the sea demonstrates the incredible nature of the deliverance. See, Jesus is not deterred by the number or the power of any demonic force. Jesus cannot be outmatched or overpowered or outgunned. Here was a man that humanity could not contain, could not restrain because of the demonic influence. And here is a man who is host to enough demons to cause a herd of 2,000 pigs to plummet to their deaths. But here is another man who comes on the scene, who can bind the strong man as we saw back in chapter 3 it was, I believe, or chapter 4. Now I'm forgetting the uh, text there. In chapter 3, he binds the strong man. Here is a man who comes in the name of the Lord God Almighty. He is able to make all things new. Jesus Christ is not deterred by any evil force. And so the totality of the restoration is described in verse 15. It says, they came to Jesus. They saw the demon-possessed man. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. He's sitting there. Previously, he was unrestrainable, and there he is sitting in his right mind. He was, he was clothed. Previously, he was naked, as the text describes him. He was in his right mind. Previously, he was not, and he was under the control of these evil forces. See, this text wants us to understand that Jesus can take even the most extreme cases, he can transform them, and he isn't limited by any of the spiritual forces of darkness that exist. Jesus can conquer any evil force. Notice the response of the people. It says they're afraid. At the end of verse 15, it says they were afraid when they saw the man. In verse 17, they begged Jesus to leave their region. And that's the same word for begging that was used 
by the demons to say, oh, I beg you, don't, don't cast us out, but let us go to these pigs. Well, now these people are begging Jesus. Don't, you, don't need to, you don't stay here. You need to go. Why are they so afraid? Why aren't they excited about what Jesus can do here? Some of us suggested that it's because they lost a fortune with the herd of pigs and they don't want to suffer any more financial loss. It may have been a reality there, but one commentator I was reading put it this way, and I think this is right. I put the quotation up on the screen. In response to what Jesus has done, Jesus is seen as a dangerous disruption to their peaceful lives. The inbreaking power of the kingdom of God does not bring a comfortable life and the status quo, but rather a radical transformation of individuals and societies. Find a little bit of irony here in that, in that quotation. Jesus is seen as a dangerous disruption to their peaceful lives. Well, how could life be peaceful when there's, a, when there's this demoniac on the loose? Right? But it's so often that those who live in chaos, they don't know anything else. And any change is going to only feel like more chaos, even if that change is what brings about peace. When the status quo is challenged, that's a fearful thing. And so they ask him to leave. Well, how does the man respond? He was delivered. He says uh, I, he wants to go with Jesus. But he says in verse 18, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. Again, that same word for begging. Well, please, let this happen. But notice how Jesus responds. He says, no, it is not time to come with me right now. Here's what I want you to do instead. Verse 19. He did not permit him, but he said to him, go to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. Not only does Jesus desire restoration within the lives of these, this man's life who was wrecked by this demonic influence, not only does he want to see restoration, but he wants to see a proclamation of that testimony to others. Now, this is very interesting because previously, as we have seen as we've been working through this book, that Jesus had commanded others who were delivered to remain silent and to not spread the message. He says, you know, you keep this to yourself. And we talked about at that time the reason for that as Jesus was proclaiming the kingdom. He's, he is setting the agenda for how he wants to reveal himself, how he wants people to understand the message. And so he says, yeah, no, you don't need to tell anyone here. And in fact, later in this same chapter, we're going to see Jesus say the same thing at the end of the chapter. He's going to tell them, don't tell anyone about this. So why is there a change here? Why would Jesus tell some, hey, don't say anything, but here, hey, go tell everyone. Why the change? I believe there are at least two contextual reasons for this change in Jesus' approach. First, here they're in a Gentile area. This is not a Jewish area. Previously in Jesus' ministry, he is, he is proclaiming the message with, uh, amongst the Jewish people, and as he's talking about them, he's communicating the message of the kingdom 
Well, these are the Jews that would have had preconceived ideas about who the Messiah was to do and to be. And Jesus is not going to be who they're expecting him to be. And so if the news got out in a way that, that he had not anticipated or he did not intend, that could change how that ministry would have to unfold. And so he tells the people, don't tell anyone because I am going to unfold the nature of my Messiahship in my terms, in my time. And so he tells the Jews, silence. He will reveal himself very intentionally to avoid misconceptions about who he is. But with the Gentile audience, those concerns are minimal or non-existent. This is the Gentile region. There's the herd of pigs. Of course, the Jews couldn't raise pigs because, you know, they're unclean. They're not kosher for them. So this is a Gentile farm, a Gentile farmer's Gentile community. So it's a very different context. The second reason here, it says the people are afraid and they want nothing to do with Jesus. They want Jesus to go away. So it seems that all the talk around what has happened to the pigs, that's the focus. What happened to the pigs? Oh, we're afraid. And the focus is on the pigs. The focus isn't on what Jesus did for this man whose life was ruined and Jesus restored him. And so Jesus commissions this man. He says, no, you return to your community and you let them know how much this Jesus has done for you. And so he does. That's where the focus should be. Jesus restored this man's life. And so Jesus tells, them, he tells this man to tell his people how much the Lord has done for him, and that's exactly what he does. The text says he began to proclaim how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. They were amazed. They were in awe of what happened here. Well, as we think about this text, in this text we learn about the destructive desire and nature of the demonic realm. The demons are real, and we don't want to have a hyper-fixation and a hyper-fascination upon the, demon, the, the demonic realm, but the truth is they are real. The text speaks about this. They will do whatever they can to bring destruction. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This does not mean that we should be going out and looking for demons behind every bush, like I mentioned earlier, but it does mean that we should think seriously and carefully about the spiritual warfare that does exist. We must not be lulled into thinking that demons aren't active in any way or maybe they're only active in the most extreme cases. So we want to think rightly about the demonic realm. But in this text, we also learn about how great and how powerful Jesus Christ is and how he desires our restoration more than the, desires, the demons desire our destruction. There's no case that's too hard for Jesus. There's nobody that's beyond the reach of Jesus Christ. There's no one who has gone so far that they're beyond the grace and the saving of Jesus Christ. Christ can enter into someone's life and, and change everything about that person. If we surrender our hearts and our lives to Him, Jesus can do the impossible in such a way that all would marvel to see the change that He brings about in our lives. 
finally, in this text, we are reminded of the responsibility to tell others about what Christ has done. Have you seen Christ work changes within your own heart and your life? Or maybe Jesus didn't have to cast out, you know, 6,000 demons out of your life. But he has done something else within your life, has he not? Have you seen him provide in unique ways? Have you seen him work and has you, have you seen him refine you and, and teach you? Our personal testimonies can be a powerful way to, to bridge to gospel conversations, to share about how Jesus died in our place upon that cross, and then we can have life in Him for all who believe. So I just challenge us, who is Christ calling us to share our testimony with today? Reminded of the classic hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. We serve a great Savior who is able to transform lives. Let's praise Him and let's tell others about Him. Lord, thank You so much for Jesus Christ. Thank You for this testimony of Scripture, how Jesus Christ powerfully radically transform this individual's life, take a wrecked and ruined life that was isolated from his community and controlled by the forces of darkness and has transformed him and transferred him into the kingdom of light and caused him to be a testimony to what Christ has done. Lord, I pray that we would share this same testimony with others. Lord, our lives are different from this man's life. Our testimonies are different from this man's testimony. But each of us who believe in Jesus Christ, we know how you have impacted us. We know, we know how you have transformed us and are still transforming us even to this day. And I pray, Lord, that that transformation would be evident to all, that they would see and marvel at the change that Christ is making in our hearts and in our lives. Lord, I pray that we would be bold witnesses proclaiming everything that Christ has done for us, that we would glorify you through it all, and that through these gospel conversations, many more would hear, believe, and follow after Jesus Christ. Thank you, and we pray all of this in Christ's name, amen.